I'm now in my 30th year working to restore nature in forests and on farms, mostly across the north of England. 30 years ago, I left the city and my old job behind. I hung up my suit and tie and went off to plant trees. It's a decision I've never regretted. Before we get into season three of Triumph Podcasts, um, I have the delight to bring to you two specials we recorded at the Oxford Real Farming Conference. I'm Pete Leeson. Welcome to Tree Amble Podcast Specials. As many good things start, the Oxford Real Farming Conference came into being from a set of conversations between ideas people and practical people who had a passion for something better and who felt the time was right for a different voice. This short interview with Colin Tudge and Ruth West looks at the origins of the Oxford Real Farming Conference, which was 15 years old this year. I've been lucky enough to be at Oxford for three of the live conferences and I sat through the online sessions in COVID. For me, this conference, uh, and this year there were 1,800 people paying delegates this year, is one of the warmest, most glorious gatherings of people possible. It's a wonderful, energizing start to the year. Triamble had the pleasure of interviewing Colin and Ruth towards the end of 2023, and then actually going to Oxford's Real Farming Conference in the new year. Our two episodes, uh, our two special episodes, include this one, and a second called Voices from the Oxford Real Farming Conference. In the second one, we interview a pretty random collection of people we bumped into. Some we knew already and many we didn't. I hope you enjoyed both episodes. Good morning, Ruth and Colin. Um, you are founders of the... Oxford Real Farming Conference and the story I've heard is that you got a little bit or were upset by by the fact that there was a there was a, an Oxford Farming Conference but there wasn't a real one and the story as it goes is that you got together with some mates in a pub how true is that it wasn't a pub it was a tea room in Cheltenham ah. or coffee place but that's a detail. I'll tell you how it's The chap whose idea it was, which I always like to emphasise, is neither of us, but a chap called Graham Harvey, you may have heard of. Yeah. He's quite a well-known agricultural journalist, written quite a few books, pioneer of pasture feeding, and was advisor to the archers for quite oh. a few years. Okay. So he's... And he observed that the Oxford Farming Conference, the sort of official one in inverted commas, which has been going for about 60 odd years, was really a sort of a front a sort of shop window for the government and for the corporates to say how wonderfully they were doing promoting industrial farming, etc. And Graham said, this is absolute rubbish. And he talked to us Partly because, or mainly because, he and I used to work together on Farmers Weekly for about 
few months. And so we knew each other. And he knew that we were sympathetic towards this point of view. So we said, and I had written a book, or I coined the expression, enlightened agriculture, which I define as agriculture that is expressly designed to provide everyone in the world, everywhere, with good food, food yeah. of the highest uh, standards, nutritionally and gastronomically, forever. And I maintain that this is possible if that's what you set out to do. Yeah. But the kind of farming we have now, which is industrial farming, which is run by governments like ours and the corporates and financiers with their chosen advisors, is not designed to provide good food for everybody. I think, you know, everybody, people ought to realise it's not designed to do that. It's actually designed to make money yeah. with the hope, I think you could say, fingers crossed, that if you make money out of running agriculture, somehow or other, everybody's going to get fed. Yeah. But you wouldn't want to set up by saying we don't actually care about feeding people, we only care about making money. So the sort of idea is that you're actually farming in this sort of very aggressive way in order to feed people, and you it pretenses that this is necessary. To be fair to the people that embrace this industrial agriculture, many of them believe, I think most of them believe, what they say. Yeah. In other words, the world cannot be fed unless we go down the industrial route. And that simply is not true. In fact, it's the opposite of the truth. And actually, the people that run agriculture are administrators and economists and politicians. On the whole, they're not biologists or ecologists. Mm. And insofar as they employ biologists, they employ the kind who will help them to promote industrial agriculture. So we said we've got to break away from this. Let us, well, Graham said, let's start our own conference talking about what I call enlightened agriculture, which we shortened to real farming because people felt enlightened agriculture had too many syllables. Yeah. So as birds, we first met in a tea room in Cheltenham and discussed this in 2009. Yeah. And then in 2010, we set up the first ever Oxfordville Farming Conference in a library, medieval library, in Oxford. There's no shortage of medieval libraries in Oxford, yeah. and we found a nice one. And we had, on one afternoon, one afternoon only, we had about 80 farmers. There were some very distinguished people among them. I mean, the, the, the whole meeting was chaired by Sir Crispin Tekel, who you may well know, real champion of conservation and global warming, who'd been British ambassador to the United Nations. I mean, very, very good chap. And also there were people like, well, Martin Wolfe, yeah. great pioneer of uh, agroforestry, and Bob Wuskov, one of the world's leading animal nutritionists, and, for example, Patrick Holland, who's well known for various things. So it was a very good meeting, but only lasted in one afternoon, yeah. and then we all dispersed. Ruth can take up the story at this point. <laughs> Well, and it was decided, we, we thought it would be a one-off, but it was decided actually possibly we should have it for another year. And yeah. so, uh, and then having done one year, then you sort of have to start making it work better. So the first year we just put out a, a plastic bucket for donations and we managed to make things work that way. Um, and then we started getting, yes, we started to grow. And so we started then adding in other rooms. So the, the room we started, what I rather liked about it, was the room where they founded Oxfam. There was right. a nice plaque on the wall to, yeah. to remind us 
with that. So we thought this is a good place for new things to start. Um, and uh, so we gradually, so we tried other colleges, other venues as well, but um, whilst keeping the church as well, because the library was the university church library. Um, and um, then finally, thanks to ongoing support from Peter Kindersley, uh, who said, you know, you really got to just go to one place where you're going to be able to get everybody in. We moved to the town hall and that just really took it up a level. Um, Graham, by the way, will be at um, Oxfordville Farming Conference in January, so hopefully you'll be able to catch up with him. Um, and then just to add in another point, this is sort of a supplement to, to what Colin was saying about um, uh, the, the, you know, there's, there's this whole um, debate going on right now and very little research that where, where farmers are really worried that if they use no-till, they're going, if they give up ploughing and they go for um, no-till, they have to use glyphosate. Yeah. And battle is raging about that with very little evidence. And we've got one of the farmers who actually said, look, no, you can do without glyphosate with your arable. The yields may go down for a bit, but then they recover. That's just the soil and everything else. Um, but that's a very interesting example where there's just lack of knowledge because the research hasn't been put into it. Because, yeah, who's, who's going to pay for the research like that? Can I just make one other point too? Please crack on. Yes, this is great. When we started, of course, we were very much the poor relation, um, renegades and mavericks. And I think we had 80 people at the first meeting Oxford, the proper Oxford conference, the Oxford farming conference was much, much bigger. And they sort of patronised us for a few years. Well, now we have 1,800 delegates and we're turning them away because we just have too many. And we went online globally a few years back, thanks to Ruth largely. So, you know, we have grown and grown and grown, yeah. attracted tremendous interest. And the Oxford farming conference, the official one, sort of stayed where it is very very expensive few hundred people largely corporate sponsored etc etc so the signs are that the future is with us well it, as i said earlier this is my fourth one and i mean we the first one i went to was pre-covid and then right. we had the covid years and i missed the buzz of the conference because it's a fantastically buzzy place um, but what was great about the online one was we saw literally women in mud huts in Africa talking yeah. to the world about their food sovereignty, their food story. Um, and I, I just thought that was, I mean, where else was I going to see that kind of coverage? Nowhere. Exactly, exactly. And, and of course, if, if, if agriculture is going to be turned around or if the natural world is going to be turned around or the world is going to be turned around, it's not going to be by governments and corporates. It's going to be by people at large who, who give a damn, frankly. <laughs> You're going to love the uh, meeting the people from Andhra Pradesh then when we've got this wonderful um, work that's going on. 836,000 farmers involved. Yeah. looking at um, organic uh, agroecology and comparing it with other ways of farming and early research coming in which just shows that in terms of community cohesion, growth or all the indicators as well as producing good food, nutritious food, um, agroecology is winning hands down. 
and we, we were hoping that one of the, the women farmers who actually is the tutor there was going to be able to come. We've got a slight kick up, just slight, with the visa we give him. But there will be one other person from there, yeah. But it's such a good project. It just really just well done, Andhra Pradesh, yeah. Well, it, it, isn't it amazing? We, we are one of the most developed countries in the world. Um, but that development almost stymies us because we have uh, this very entrenched economic kind of powerhouse behind modern farming and we've we've lost our way with a lot of the a lot of the characters i deal with that the smaller farmers who want to change they want to hull out get rid of those chemicals they want to get rid of them and go back to what they see as proper farming but the system seems to be against them a wee bit this is absolutely right and i like to make the point that the whole role of government as i see it assuming it's got a role at all which i think it has but its role is to enable good things to happen. Yep. Actually, what our government does, and most governments in the modern world do, is to stand in the way of good things happening. But we want... We, no, we want good governance. We, we, that's what we demand when we, when we go to the ballot box, is good governance. And we, and we haven't got it, have we? No, absolutely not. Mm -hmm. But the missing link with research is really very serious, I think, because farmers now have been persuaded to change practice because of what's going on, losing the cap payments and going to Elms, that they really don't have the money that they need. So they're looking, having to look more and more at bottom line. And the argument that's winning is regenerative, which is I don't like it, means good things for your bottom line. Yeah. Well, actually, long term, that ain't going to, to do it because you, you've got to have social change you've got to have the transformation of the whole food supply and that's why food the food sovereignty bit is so important needs to come in and farmers get it you know they just need the, the evidence they need the research to show them that but, the but they also need the support i mean this is something which i again come back to the podcast one of the things i found is is that we have in a very small way made made a, we've, we've we've been onto farms and we've we've said good things we've supported people we've gone up the drive and offered them help and volunteers and free trees and free hedgerow plants and gone and helped put them in and do you know what a lot of those farmers are saying to me they are isolated and when they try and change they become more isolated because of the the, the conservative nature of farming and and so actually it's a, it's also bound in us to try and go and support i'm not a farmer but i want to go and support them to change so there's there's that that's part of the social uh, social response, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's fabulous. Can, can I also say too that way back in the 1970s, I worked for Farmers Weekly briefly. I mean, basically, I'm a biologist rather than anything, but I thought this would be nice to work for Farmers Weekly, so I did. And then, and my job really was to go around and look at all the agricultural research that was going on. And in those days, there were something like twenty something dedicated research stations looking at all aspects of farming, arable, highland, etc., pastoral and so on. And they were run by the government, by the Ag Agriculture and Food Research Council, mm -hmm. AFRC. Yeah. And they were brilliant. And then along came Margaret Thatcher, etc., in the 1980s. And as Martin Wolf liked to say, she handbagged a whole lot of them. So a few of them now are still sort of doing proper agricultural research sponsored by the government for the farmers basically trying to produce good food the rest have been privatized mm. or yeah basically they've been privatized and their brief is to make money yeah if you can't make money you don't exist 
that it's a huge abnegation of responsibility mm. by the government or successive governments. We got the news this morning of the ADHB increasing the levy they put on their farmers. Did you yeah. hear that? Yeah. Ordinary. Ah. At a time when actually farming comes really on the edge, and yes, yeah, yes, yes, yes. yeah. yeah. I met Martin Wolf, and and I had the pleasure of of um, interviewing his son for one of my podcasts, and you know I really. Oh, David's extraordinary. He's fantastic. Yeah, <laughs> episode four, um, but uh, I loved I I I'm a Suffolk lad originally, although I live in Cumbria and have done for thirty years. Um, it was just one of those chance things. I went down to Wakelands, and I just—it was a turning point for me because Martin was just so brilliant and explaining. Do you know what? Yeah, this is polyculture stuff. It's it's breaks. It's all this kind of stuff going on, and all this stuff going on underground as well that we don't really know about. And it was just one of those moments in my life where you think, actually, <laughs> we've gone seriously wrong. And, and not researching this stuff, not understanding it, is is just desperate. Why don't we Why don't we understand this stuff? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you get these very crude announcements. I saw this, something as well in Farmers Weekly, sustainable agriculture, or something or other, was saying that organic can never do it because the the um, OFMG had said that with organic, just ten percent, you would get all the biodiversity gains, conservation gains, and everything else, and you would get good food. But, but there, it's just claims and counterclaims at the moment. Yeah. What we really need is that research. We yeah. so do. That's right. Yeah. And the research that counts basically is, is ecological research. And ecological research is a practical kind. What can be made to work? And the research we actually have, which the government puts our money into, is basically biotech, mm. gene editing and all that stuff. The assumption is that only high-tech can really do it, so we'll back high-tech. The reality is that's not true, but also the reason they back it is because in the short term, it's very, very lucrative. Yeah. And that's what they really, really care about. Oh, it should be lucrative because people invest in it. Well, then they buy patents as well. And then we have seeds that are patented that we can't share to the third world. Yeah. It's all, all the above. Amongst <laughs> our own farmers, because that's one of the things that we've got a couple of sessions that you'll enjoy as well. It's the UK Grain Alliance. Yeah. And they've got this new temporary experiment going on from Martin's work with YQ. Um, and they're, they're wanting to show there then they've got a, a, a supply chain that can be fully traceable from the farmer to the, ba- the miller, the baker, mm. um, to show safety and all the other things that they say, they say you can only do if you, if you pay some of money in. But, um, and register. But they, you can't register YQ because <laughs> you, don't know what you're, you don't know what you're registering. There's, there's no, it's, it's heterogeneous, and that's the whole point. Which is the whole the point. The experiment is to set up a way of actually registering heterogeneous grain. But it's still running into trouble with the official registration bodies for seeds who just can't fathom it or they don't want to. And it's preposterous, isn't it? We can clone stuff and engineer it and, and patent that, but we can't have something which is shared with, 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 with love, love and care around a community um, because it's, as you say, heterogeneous. It's, it, it, we don't quite know what it is, but it works.
one of the fundamental things, I think, is that we've grown up with the idea, I think, largely over the last 200 years, and Darwin, unfortunately, was implicated in this, that nature and life are fundamentally um, competitive and that the only way we can survive is by competing head-to-head for personal advantage. And the economy, the neoliberal capitalist economy, is based on that idea. Mm. It's absolutely fundamental to the modern way of thinking. In fact, as you're suggesting, the way forward must be by cooperation. And we need an economy based on cooperation and farming systems based on cooperation, etc. And nature itself, I would like to argue, which we perhaps expand on, is fundamentally cooperative. And the idea that it's fundamentally made in tooth and claw, which comes from Tennyson, doesn't come from Darwin, is just not actually the case. It is the case that there is conflict in nature. It's a fact. But the essence of nature is this cooperativeness. And actually, cooperation co- cooperation goes at every level, doesn't it? So I, I, I'm very interested in people's mental well-being and, and how, they, how they're supported, particularly in times of change and, and threat. But we're doing a session at at uh, Oxfordville on natural flood management and natural flood management is is possibly the is one of those things where it has to work at scale and we have to work together at a landscape scale if we're going to change and reduce floods but the same works for nature we talk about reconnecting landscapes um, we all know the, the, the number of old big trees that we lost the number of hedgerows we've lost you know, we need to work collectively to reconnect the landscape so it becomes permeable for migratory birds or butterflies or whatever. Um, so all of these things, they, they do tilt towards cooperation. They are. I like the idea very much that, that at all levels, that this is a sort of Eastern Buddhist kind of idea, Taoist idea, that the universe is... Um, is fundamentally harmonious. Uh, in the sort of common sense view of that is that if it wasn't so, if the different bits didn't work together, you wouldn't have a universe at all. You'd yeah. have chaos. But we do have a universe. So it's sort of in itself demonstration that cooperativeness, harmony are fundamental. And I like the idea because it's a nice and neat idea, it's a metaphysical kind of idea that the essence of goodness is to contribute to the harmony of society, of the universe, of nature. And the essence of not goodness, badness, is to detract from that. Our economy detracts from that. War detracts from that. Almost everything that goes on in the modern world, called modernity, detracts from that. And also attitude to nature then, is there to be exploited and manipulated. It's just, it's, yeah. Whereas what we need is the great sense is a sense of oneness, which we find in Eastern religions very strongly. Don't find it so much in Christianity, which is a pity. Yeah. You certainly won't find it in the, or in government <laughs> or in corporate circles. And and we know we know that that mycorrhizae fungi work positively with trees and shrubs and, oh. and plants. And and this is this is. This is true sharing, isn't it? And it, it's it's one set of resources that one plant can cre- can create, is shared with another plant, if you want to call it that, or system which can't create those but can create other things. And and that that bringing together is 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 fundamental, isn't it? I came across a particular example the other day, 
which you will know about much more than I, but if you cut a tree down and you leave a stump, the stump goes on living yeah. for decades. And how on earth does it do so when it's not got any canopy, it's not got any photosynthesis going on? The answer is it's, my, it's mycorrhizas feed it. And where do they get their nourishment from? From all the other trees yeah. that are all around, which are photosynthesizing. So the whole thing becomes a kind of one big, well, one big cooperative. Would, with many different species of tree, perhaps co 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 helping each other out. And, and actually we then, unfortunately, we, we draw a plough or a time through that field and we put chemicals and fertilisers on it and then we destroy that. And then we wonder yeah. why. 40 years later, the field isn't working for us either. Right. And that That's comes right. right back to the beginning of this conversation. Yeah. Um, I, uh, one thing which interests me is, is how you will respond to words like rewilding um, or, I suppose, setting aside land for nature. As farmers, how, how does that... I, I can tell that there's kind of this <laughs> tension there between perhaps conservation at one end and farming at the other. Can I put in a nice story? You, you, the, the, the people really started off with the whole wildish thing, NEP. Um, they then, I can't remember how many years ago, they decided that they really needed to balance up what they were doing, and so they set up a farm, um, which is wild. And, they, that farm is now a member of the pasture-fed livestock, or pasture for life, certified, and so the trees and everything is all amongst the farmers in the city, and they are going to supply the meat for the pasture for life meal at the conference, which is fully worth. The and the restaurant is Wilding Restaurants, so it's Wilding Wine in Oxford. So I think it's rather a nice kind of uh, joining of the circle there, really. <laughs> so that's yes. About how wild rewilding yeah. really, and it's very, it, and, and it's um, because they brought out this textbook, didn't they, on rewilding? Pointed out just actually, it's very, very difficult. It requires a lot of attention. You can't just say, okay, I'm rewilding those thousand acres there. I'm going to just let it go, and everything will be fine. It really doesn't work like that. Yeah, this is one point which you will know very well that conservation in a sort of limited space with all the pressures, conservation in general, but certainly conservation, agroecology, which is, you know, reconciling agriculture with conservation. Yeah. Very, very skills intensive and therefore labor intensive. I mean, it's not, as, it, as Ruth said, it's not just a question of putting a fence around it and standing back. You really have to be, in effect, a very good gardener, but at a somewhat higher, you're not just trying to make pretty pictures. Well. I uh, you know, I, I suppose I've, you know, as a younger person now, I'm now, well, a little bit older, um, <laughs> you know, realising that actually this is just so many wonderful circles all connecting with agroecology. Because one thing we've, we have established, I think, through conservation is, is that you can't ring fence something and expect it to survive on its own. There has to be dynamism in that landscape. It has to be dynamic. If you lose the dynamism then you lose the pushes and pulls in the landscape that make it biodiverse. And this always comes back to then herbivores, animals in the landscape, what are they doing? And then you're thinking, well, okay, if we're going to have those there, we might as well farm it in some way. So in a sense, I like that wilding, the rewilding story from NEP because it, it, has, it has come back to a level of farming 
um, which is producing meats and good and good things for people, but not in that very intense way, which is pushed by chemicals. It's pushed by biology and producing food. I suppose that then comes back to the constant conversations we have is, well, it's all right for you because you can afford to buy their meat. Um, what about everybody else? Um, can I come on? Because this is a key thing. I mean, the reason that so many people can't afford good fresh food is because the, the agriculture itself is not set up to produce good food for everybody and it's not supported in a way that makes that possible. So it's set up in a way that makes it possible and necessary for people to make, basically to make as much money as they can out of it in competition with everybody else, which favours the corporates, which favours shortcuts, etc. So that's one thing. The actual farming is designed to maximise wealth rather than to produce good food. The other thing, of course, is that Britain is not a poor country. And we're either the fifth or the sixth largest mm. economy in the world. We're bigger than Germany. We're bigger than France. Yeah. Who are much, in general, a higher standard of living. And the real problem is not lack of wealth, although they're all talking about growth, growth, growth. It's, it's inequality, yeah. injustice. And the reason so many people are, can't afford food is because they're much poorer than they ought to be because we have an economy that's designed to make very, very rich people and leave the poor or the less well-off people to fend for themselves. It's a, it is a, it's a social problem, it's not a, it's not a production problem. And, and, and in that equality, of course, you've got the farmers who only get 0.8% of the added value of the whole food supply. So it's not going to the farmers. They seriously are, not, are very poor, a lot of them. It's going to the, the, the other end of the supply chain and the shareholders as well, the supermarkets. So if you have a, a system that's just not set up to do the job, you can't, you can't expect be surprised to them. <laughs> <laughs> So, in a few weeks' time, uh, this is we're, we're recording just before Christmas. Um, we've got eighteen hundred people descending on Oxford. Um, there's two two things I want to ask you. One is, how do you feel about having created something which just has this much life and vitality to it? And the other thing is, do, where do you see it going in the next twenty, thirty years? Maybe, maybe beyond our lifetimes. Is it still going to be there? Is it still going to be needed? And I take the easy bit, which is how did you, the, the really good thing about it is we got advice early on and said, look, don't set it up as a conference. You know, you've got to have an advisory body and everything's top down. And after a year or two, you'll run out of steam because you think, what do we do next? Make it one in which the people who are coming provide the programme. So that's what's happened, really. So we have partner organisations and then we have other people who've really got something important to, to talk about. And they have the energy then to put the session together. And that requires being in charge of their session, making sure the speakers are all on board and know what they're supposed to be talking about. So that takes that whole thing off us. And what's been exciting has been it's been at the right time. There's been this movement for change. And there's lots of young people coming in, the Land Workers Alliance is sort of emblematic of that. So in a sense, I just think, gosh, it was the right timing. Who would have thought? And here we still are. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it is this feeling then of partying and celebration, as well as the importance of learning. 
being together, sharing, all those other things. It's yeah. just, yeah, where it goes next. I mean, it's with the heavens, isn't it? I said, the Colin might have ideas. Um, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know is the answer. I think what what you were saying, the energy is there, the dynamism is there, the ideas are there, yeah. it's all out there. And I think there's enough good people on board who understand what the issues are and who want to do something about it to continue it forward. That's what I, that's what I think is the case. Um, with a bit of luck, it will carry on forever yeah. and will always be necessary. Actually, it's always going to be necessary because it's very easy to make a change for the better and then slide back to where you were before. Mm. We're certainly seeing that with the present government. Are we not at every turn? Well, are we not? Rowing back on the, on the principles of greenness, which... Um, has horrified me. Um, I cannot understand. I cannot understand why green doesn't make economic sense, because wind turbines or solar panels, whatever it is, are the cheapest forms of of, of, of energy. Um, why you want to continue to pollute our atmosphere, climate change? I do not get it, <laughs> uh, and I don't think I ever will. And maybe I'll die trying. But there we go. Um, in my recent. You know, I've got a website now called www.colintodge.com. I didn't, no. Oh, I must send you the newsletter unless you object. No, I, I, I won't object at all. I'll send it then. Um, we have it on record. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yes, I've been writing recently. My, one of my most recent blogs is Why is Government So Bad? <laughs> and it addresses the kind of question that you're asking now. Why do they make these perverse, stupid, etc.? decisions that they do and it's partly to do with lots of things but largely it's to do with education I think that's what I mean I mean I'm being a bit superficial here but the education does not equip people to understand the kind of things we're talking about so you find good advisors you appoint good advisors and you listen to them so this whole debate about food that Henry Dimbleby kicked off you know put him in place to do it and then and then say oh well, whatever he says, we're not going to do because <laughs> it's too politically challenging, uh, etc. I think we're going to have to wrap up here because I, I, I sense, um, I sense this could go on for hours, and we we only have a couple of hours in this podcast to actually get everybody in. So, one final point: we've got people from Uttar Pradesh coming. We've got the Land Workers Alliance. What's what's the breadth of the conference this year? Oh, I've been looking at the programme for the last two days, actually. It is very wide. We, farm practice has always got to be sent to us, to, of course. And you're there with floods, and we've also got drought, an example of yeah. drought from, from Spain, a, a lovely community down there really turning things around there. So climate change, the cross-cutting issues, that's the thing that's confusing. So there's quite a bit then on net zero and on other ways in which agroecology and climate can really help mitigate climate change. And that's got to be a big theme with COP28 following up to that. New entrants, this, um, themes about them, issues about that, about supporting them, and what is DEFRA going to be able to do about that. But Arable is there. That we've got a wonderful one as well with, with the whole thing about glyphosate and, and no, and no ploughing, um, and how do you actually get um, arable and horticulture upper level to, to field level without um, the glyphosate and all the pesticides and things that can it be done. Um, uh, we've got about things about retail as well and, and how to actually to develop um, 
um, local local farming, um, from field to fork kind of things. Uh, we've got stuff about heterogeneous grains and how to build this movement. Um, we've got a lot there. Right, it's a huge amount. And, and also this justice side as well. There's, so there's quite a bit there. That's, so we've got a justice hub. Can I just make the point? My latest book, which I've forgotten to wave at you. <laughs> the point of it is that if we're going to rescue the world at this late stage, we actually have to rethink absolutely everything from the details of day-to-day -day living, cooking and farming, for example, to what kind of technologies we really need, what kind of science we really need, what the moral principles are, what the metaphysical principles are, how they translate into economic and political reality, all needs to be rethought across the board. More than that, everything needs to be rethought in the light of everything else. Yeah. And the Oxford Rural Farming Conference, I think, reflects that. This is my book. Where are oh, there we are. The Great Rethink, A 21st Century Renaissance by Colin Touch. That, that is a fantastic bringing together of all the conversation we've had. Thank you very so much. Um, I'm going to stop recording now. And, but thank you, Colin and Ruth. Wonderful. To meet Colin Ruth online was just amazing for me. Um, having been to the conference and felt the energy and buzz from that group of people, to think that you've, you've then met the people who created that space is, is just brilliant. Our next special is all about the voices from the conference. We interviewed lots of different people, random people we met, some of those we knew, some we didn't. And I hope you enjoy the next special, which is Voices from the Oxford Real Farming Conference. You've been listening to the Tree Amble podcast, written and produced by myself, Pete Leeson. My special thanks go to Pete Ord for his awesome production and mixing skills. And actually, Pete and Pete, both of us, we wrote the music, so thanks very much to Pete for his input there. The recording was on location with mixing and production at the studio at Sunbeams, part of the Annie Mawson Sunbeams Music Trust. Thanks also to all those lovely people who were interviewed, Simon Wakefield for the artwork, and my special thanks go to those who gave me the confidence and support to make this happen. Angela, Anne, Catherine, Tim, Tim, Kevin, Emma, Nick and Paul. Thank you. <laughs>